0: At its peak in 2000, General Electric was the most valuable company in America, worth almost $600 billion, and had business lines that sprawled across boundaries to touch vast swaths of life in the developed world. GE's industrial machinery and consumer goods electrified the power grid and lit American homes and kitchens. Its engines kept aloft American fighter jets, commercial airliners around the planet, and even Air Force One. Its lenders propped up new owners of McDonald's franchises and leased out rail cars, carrying oil, grain, and lumber across North America. Its sonograms beamed images to expectant parents. Its X-rays revealed broken bones and its MRI machines scanned organs searching for cancer. Americans dashed to its refrigerators for snacks then back to their couches to watch episodes of Seinfeld and Friends, also made by GE. General Electric was an industrial company, yet it seemed to sell everything. Fewer than two decades later, the logo can still be seen everywhere, but that GE is gone, if not unimaginable. While still a massive operation with hundreds of facilities, GE's stock is a mere fraction of its peak value. The company is no longer a media darling, or an analyst favorite, its shares are no longer counted in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and the once generous dividend is virtually gone. A share of GE stock was once an essential component of the beginner investor's portfolio, but is now perceived as a speculative bet. A generation ago, such a view would have bordered on market heresy. So this is from Lights Out, by Thomas Gritta and Ted Mann. In April 2022 at the Henry Singleton Awards for CEO of Excellence, Charlie Munger had a conversation with Todd Combs where he stated, I think that the book Lights Out, which chronicles the decline of GE, ought to be required reading in every business school in the country. It won't be because they don't want to offend anybody. But it should be. In Berkshire's 2019 annual letter, Buffett noted that Abraham Lincoln once asked an audience how many legs a dog has if you count the tail as a leg. When the audience answered five, Lincoln told them the answer was four. The fact that you called the tail a leg did not make it a leg. This sentiment explains a lot of what of what went wrong at GE. Being a hundred plus year old company, there's a lot of history at GE, but I'm not going to get into an in-depth accounting of it. I think a little background is helpful, though. GE was formed from a merger between Thomas Edison's Edison Electric Company and the Thompson Houston Electric Company in 1892. The merger was arranged by J.P. Morgan, the actual man, not the bank. Edison was left with no real role in the new company and served briefly on the board before he sold all of his shares within a year of its creation. This story of GE deals with three main errors. Jack Welch's time as CEO, followed by Jeff, Jeff Amounts, and then the more recent, present period. Jack Welch is widely considered to be one of the best CEOs of the 20th century. If you Google best CEOs of the 20th century, he's pretty much on every single list that pops up. During his tenure, the market cap of GE increased from $14 billion in 1981 to $410 billion in 2001. It was as high as $600 billion prior to the dot com collapse, which is like a trillion dollars inflation adjusted today. Welch started working at GE in 1960. He rose through the plastics unit like so many other executives at that time. This is a division that GE is very proud of. Among other materials they invented Lexan. There this is a polycarbonate resin thermoplastic. I don't know exactly what that is but it ended up being used in the multicolored plastic cases for the iMac that Jobs built upon his return to Apple in 1997. Welch is eventually running the plastics division and is later promoted to the consumer products division. When he eventually became CEO he was focused on efficiency and eliminating unnecessary bureaucracy from the company. He wanted to exit losing businesses. He doesn't want to compete against the Japanese in consumer electronics. He wants to be either first or second in everything that they do. Welch grew the company through almost a thousand acquisitions over the course of two decades at a cost of almost $130 billion. He earned the nickname Neutron Jack for his mass layoffs. It was joked that people were removed and the buildings were left standing. During his tenure, almost 100,000 employees were terminated. He would have managers rank employees and the bottom 10% were put on notice. If they didn't improve, they were let go. Quarter after quarter. Welch would deliver consistent, predictable growth and Wall Street rewarded the stock. In his autobiography, Welch talked about the importance of making the numbers and how GE capital could be used to essentially find earnings. I'm just going to read this section here. Welch spent $10 billion at GE Credit Corporation buying up property and business equipment. That credit then leased out to other companies. It was the beginning of the assembly of one of the greatest profit engines in the history of the company. A vast portfolio of business units and properties all designed to use GE's immense, solid balance sheet, not just to finance goods so its customers could buy them, but to pursue financial profits for their own sake. Welch's greatest innovation As great as his much-advertised embrace of management training and efficiency was this embrace of finance. It would change the makeup of the company and alter its fate. By 1985, financial services made up one-sixth of GE's annual profits, a market jump from when Welch first took the reins and financial services accounted for about 7% of GE's profits, the same level it had stayed at for much of the 1970s. As early as the mid-1980s, GE's lending operation had become as large as some of the largest U.S. financial service firms. At its height, GE Capital produced more than half of GE's total profits. The most famous industrial company in America had essentially become one of its largest and most inscrutable banks. After 20 years of leading the company, Welch begins to evaluate possible successors. He didn't like the way that he had had to compete for the job. He also knew that whoever he identified as candidates for CEO would immediately become prized by other companies. Think quarterback draft picks by New England during the Tom Brady era. Jeff Immelt is one of the candidates that's identified as a possible successor. Because he gets such a bad rep, I think it's worth pointing out a couple of positive descriptions of Immelt. Immelt possessed a legendary ability to put people at ease. His cool confidence telegraphed that he knew what he was doing. When challenged, he used his sharp wit and well worn talking points to explain why he was right, his loud guffaw and easy backslapping lightened moods and closed deals. And then here's another section. Even some of Jack Welch's confidants had privately admitted that Welch couldn't stand up to Immelt in giving a speech, working a room, and handling a crowd. Immelt had also gotten his start in the plastics division. His big break came with an appliance mishap. A new refrigerator model had shipped with a faulty condenser coil, and they had sold something like a million units that were all going to fail because of this coil. Welch tapped Immelt to come up with a solution. I don't know why this is such a groundbreaking sort of solution, but Imelt basically assembles a team of a couple thousand technicians, and they're just going to go out and fix them all. Imelt even rolls up his sleeve and starts, you know, doing some of the repairs himself. At any rate, his idea of fixing all the coils identifies him as a rising star in the company, and Immelt is promoted to head of plastics. Shortly after this promotion, Immelt badly misses his quarterly projections. He didn't understand how GE earnings worked yet. You identify the earnings you're supposed to hit and you work backwards to make the numbers. Immelt simply reported what the numbers were. He's faced with the decision of either cleaning up the books at Plastics on his watch and looking bad while he's in contention for CEO, or he can kick the can down the road. And he kicks the can, he makes his numbers, and he's promoted to the healthcare division. And this is a really common theme. There's a number of division heads who will see problems in their units, but because they're in contention for bigger jobs, possibly even the CEO position, they don't want to rock the boat. They pretend that things are okay with the expectation that they're going to fix things once they get their next job. And this of course is a recipe for disaster in a segmented conglomerate where it's easy to hide problems. Eventually, Imelt is selected to be the next CEO at the end of 2000. Welch doesn't step down right away. He wants to stick around to make one last big acquisition. He wants to buy Honeywell, but the European Union is opposed to the idea of GE consolidating so much power in aviation and begins to make the deal impossible through the concessions that they're demanding. Welch realizes that as much as he wants the deal, he has to walk away. In September 2001, Imel inherits a GE with a market capitalization of just over $402 billion and a share price of around $38. When he leaves GE 16 years later, the market cap is going to stand at just under $222 billion. Jack Welch officially leaves GE on September seventh two 2001. A few days later, of course, is September 11th, and GE has exposure to damaged damaged buildings through insurance. There's lost TV ad revenue, there's lost aviation revenue as all the planes are grounded. And There's a quote from Immelt. He says, my second day as chairman, a plane I lease, flying with engines I built, crashed into a building that I insure, and it was covered with a network that I own. This is also the time period that Enron collapses in an accounting scandal. Enron had used complex off-the-book entities to conceal debt. They were also engaged in mark-to-market accounting where they would decide what an investment was going to produce at some point in the future and then calculate the current value as if they already had cash in hand. The problem is that GE Capital is a bit of a black box like Enron. One of the tricks that GE utilizes is something called the Edison conduit, which is this massive off-book special purpose entity. And despite being off the books, it's still part of GE and is backed by GE Capital. A conduit is a structure commonly used to sell commercial paper, which is similar to a bond. GE has, AAA rating, has, has a triple A rating at this time, which is the same as the US government. In addition to giving GE access to short term cash, the conduit is also being used to buy assets from GE Capital at prices that are inflated from their book value thereby creating artificial earnings. The shareholders of course do not know that this is happening. And this is far from a perfect analogy, but imagine you you go to donate your old couch to the Salvation Army, and when they ask you to estimate the value for charity, you say, oh, that that old couch, yeah, that's that's $10,000. And so in 2000, the annual report for GE says that they are not doing this. But But after... Enron's collapse, they have to disclose $55 billion in special purpose entities. And when GE finally brings these off-balance sheet entities onto the books in 2003, they add $36.3 billion in assets. A surge in profits would seem like a good problem to have, but for a public company whose results are compared to the previous year, it's better to Spread the profits around more consistently in order to give the impression of a well-oiled machine. The Fortune writer Carol Loomis once told Jack Welch she thought the she thought the earning smoothing practice was terrible, and he disagrees with her, and says what investor would want to buy a conglomerate like GE unless the earnings were predictable and it's the earnings per share that was the primary focus at GE not the cash flow and it's easier to manipulate the earnings per share. In 2002 Sarbanes-Oxley is signed into law bringing significant changes to Wall Street. The executives have to vouch for the results that their companies report and GE's ability to massage their earnings is now greatly diminished. I'm going to read this section here. The world in which Jeff Immelt had thought he would be leading GE had been turned upside down. The recession and the uncertainty that followed the terrorist attacks had dampened the global growth on which GE's industrial businesses depended. And changes to accounting rules in the wake of the Enron scandal by requiring that the company now account for the vast financial holdings on its balance sheet at GE Capital had eliminated an easy and reliable source of paper profits to smooth over rough periods. After the implosion of Enron, Investors begin to question all these smooth consistent quarters under Jack Welch. Ultimately Immelt knows that the stock price is the all important yardstick that he's going to be measured by. By the fall of 2003 the stock is down 23% from his first day as CEO. That October GE makes a series of large acquisitions over the course of a couple of days. It finalizes a $14 billion media purchase from Vivendi that is rolled into NBC to create NBC Universal. It then buys a finished device maker, Instrumentarium, for $2 billion. And then it buys Amersham, a bioscience company, for $9.5 billion. Immelt is criticized for chasing fads, often being too late, and overpaying for deals. But Immot wants to reduce the dependence on capital. In order to keep Wall Street happy and make the numbers, GE had to maintain and even expand its reliance on capital. To do this, it has to employ creative accounting to be generous. To keep the rating agencies happy, Welch had promised to limit earnings from capital to no more than 40%. The favorable ratings from the agencies allowed GE to maintain its AAA rating. Under ML, that 40% earnings limit had gone out the window, partly just because revenue from the other areas had gone down. I'm gonna read this next section. Financial services was different from anything Immelt had worked with up close. Making money from money seemed shockingly simple to him at first, as it had to Welch. But the balance sheets were treacherously complex and deep risks lurked there and were not always easily spotted in the quarterly profits and losses. It was reasonable to think that Immelt didn't know much about the greasy gears of. It was reasonable to think that Immelt didn't know much about how the greasy gears of capital worked. In reality, it isn't clear that many people anywhere understood those complexities. Still, pinning down how well the company's leader understood its crucial lending unit was impossible even for some of those who were closest to him. Some of Immelt's critics acknowledge that he was sharper on finance than they expected, but another who worked closely with him for years Said that Immelt struggled with basic concepts, the difference between secured and unsecured debt, for, for instance, which was fundamental to a lending operation like GE Capital. As capital became bigger, its world of investment opportunities shrank, much in the same way Berkshire can't invest in microcaps at its size. I'm going to read this next section as well. In 2004, GE buys Wirehauser Mortgage Company for about 500 million from private equity firm Apollo Global Management. WMC lent money to home buyers, then flipped the mortgages, selling them to investment banks that wanted to package the streams of loans, the streams of loan payments into bonds. WMC and thus GE Capital got its money up front from those banks and went back to work finding people who wanted to borrow. All the assets on GE Capital's balance sheet had been worth less than 200 billion in 1995. That still made it a bigger financial unit than any modern industrial company had ever operated, but one that leadership said was just as safe and manageable as the rest of the company's portfolio. It had been supercharged in Welch's years growing to $425 billion by the time ML took over, as GE leaned on the unit to keep generating profits and smoothing returns. By the end of 2006, capital had mushroomed having grown by another third to $565 billion in assets, and it wasn't done growing. GE is concentrating in subprime just as the market is souring. GE also has entertainment divisions. In 2005, Peter Jackson remakes King Kong, but it doesn't do as well as they had hoped for at the box office. So they say they're just going to release a special edition DVD when it comes out on video and book additional non-existent revenue based on presumed sales of the DVD of the movie that nobody wanted to see. I'm going to read this other quote here. Dabbling in financial services had virtually destroyed GE's historical rival, Westinghouse. In some GE capital offices, there were framed articles about Westinghouse's fall in the 1990s, a collapse linked to its overexposure to financial services and commercial real estate, along with a bad bet on its core business, the power generation market. From 2005 to 2007, GE originated $65 billion dollars in mortgages, making it one of the top originators of subprime mortgages. Rejected loans got resubmitted and approved after minor adjustments. The banks GE is trying to sell the loans to either don't want to buy the loans anymore, or they're forcing GE to buy them back. GE, GE has billions in these loans on their balance sheet. Meanwhile. Share repurchases increased to $14 billion, and dividend payments require an additional $26 billion. Immelt and GE Capital also dive into commercial real estate chasing a hot sector. Exposure to real estate had been rising in Immelt's early years, but accelerated in 2006. In 2000, the company already had real estate assets of more than $20 billion, but that increased to almost $80 billion by the end of 2007. When the company reported first quarter results for 2008, GE missed estimates so badly that people thought it was a typo. I'm going to read this section here as well. GE Capital had taken a massive hit from the ongoing mortgage-related disruption. GE had boasted That it knew markets better than others and would sail through any trouble because of its risk management mastery now it was in the same boat as every other financial firm explaining to investors that the collapse of bear stearns had hit harder than expected the ge earnings engine had thrown a rod the stock saw its worst day in years losing some 50 billion dollars in market cap adding insult to injury jack welch gets on cnbc and just starts berating ml. Here's the screw up. You made a promise that you'd deliver this and you missed 3 weeks later. Jeff has a credibility issue. He's getting his ass kicked. I'd be shocked beyond belief and I'd get a gun and I'd shoot him if he if he doesn't make what he promised. Just deliver the earnings. Tell them you're going to grow 12% and deliver 12%. You have to remember that Jack Welch is infallible in the minds of most GE shareholders. You have to imagine Warren Buffett has retired, and comes out on TV to yell at Greg Abel for some screw-up. This is also the time where Bear Stearns has collapsed and gets sold to J.P. Morgan, and so there's just a lot of market chaos. Fast forward six months to September 2008, and the government has taken control of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. A few days after that, Immelt has to call Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson to tell him that GE is having trouble selling their commercial paper to investors. And again, this is how they meet their short-term funding obligations. Without its commercial paper, GE would become insolvent. Well, Immelt is going to Paulson to express his concerns. GE is telling the public markets the exact opposite. Everything is fine. Within a matter of days, Merrill Lynch is sold to Bank of America and Lehman just goes under. GE looks for a lifeline and like so many others during this time they turn to Buffett. They agree to a deal where Berkshire is going to invest $3 billion for preferred shares yielding $300 million annually along with the right to buy an additional $3 billion in stock at $22.50 for the next five years. At the same time they're raising this money from Buffett GE announces that it's going to raise money through a 12 billion dollar public offering. The problem here is that since 2007 GE has spent 15 billion dollars buying back shares at an average price of 37 dollars and 50 cents. So now selling shares at 22 dollars and 25 cents in order to raise 12 billion dollars is destroying shareholder value. It's like buying a new car and then immediately selling it because you need cash, they are just setting money on fire. With the ongoing funding concerns, Paulson and the FDIC come up with a plan to let banks sell FDIC backed bonds. This places GE at a significant disadvantage, however, because no one is going to want GE paper if they can buy government-backed bonds from the banks instead. There's a lot of talk about how these companies need to accept the consequences of their actions and there can't just be public risks and private rewards. But ultimately, GE is in a too-big-to-fail position from a power and aviation standpoint and it turns out that GE owns an industrial bank in salt lake city called GE money bank and that bank is fdic insured and so the government lets them participate through that bank and GE uses its government guarantee to write some 131 billion dollars in debt this decision to participate will come with strings attached post-crisis however this is a lot like taking money from in-laws that you can't stand with the agreement that they can come stay whenever they want and you know they can stay as long as they want there's suddenly this level of supervision at capital that the people there are not used to. The, the Fed wants to know the criteria that they use to make loans. And, well, there isn't any. Whoever brings in a loan is responsible for it because their bonus is on the line if, if it doesn't go through. The Fed supervisors start talking with the GE board of directors and they start questioning Imelt's decision-making and he can't stand it in february 2009 for the first time in over 70 years ge has to cut their dividend it gets cut from 31 cents to 10 cents the dividend is just money that they don't have and it's money that's leaving the company every quarter the dividend cut is a big deal though because of how many retirees depend upon this for income the stock keeps going down but eventually stabilizes around $6. In March, S&P cuts its credit rating on GE, and Moody's follows shortly after. GE Capital had some $600 billion in assets exposed to massive risks, including $28 billion in credit cards, $22 billion in mortgages, and $81 billion in commercial real estate. GE's AAA rating had been what allowed it to compete for deals more effectively than than others. It had a very low cost of capital, but now you have banks that are flush with cash because the government is forcing them to have certain levels of reserves on hand, and now they're out-competing GE for deals. GE Capital holds a meeting around this time with analysts to try to explain all of the risks that are on the balance sheet. No more hiding things are just going to divulge everything. Sunlight is the best in disinfectant sort of strategy. And analysts feel a lot more positive about what's going on afterwards. In an effort to raise more money, GE agrees to sell NBC to Comcast for 30 billion dollars. The problem with this is that just a few years earlier, the Carlisle Group had offered to buy NBC for $45 billion and Immelt blocked the deal stating that NBC was not for sale. With higher oil prices, the cost inputs for its prized plastics division are strained and Immelt sells the prized plastics division where so many executives had come up and trained. He sells the division for $11 billion to Saudi basic industries. Fast forward to spring 2013 and GE is looking to lessen its dependency on capital more so. The view on Wall Street is that GE is primarily a bank with power and aviation units on the side. And if it's going to act like a bank, then it's going to trade with a bank multiple. GE takes the unit of capital that deals with consumer store branded credit cards and financing plans and spins that off as Synchrony Financial, which is now its own publicly traded company. It looks to raise money by selling other units of capital, but wants to keep the most profitable unit which leases planes and jets and lends for n- new power installations and finances for healthcare equipment they they want to keep that for themselves there's this one thing that they just cannot get rid of and there's this handful of really bad insurance deals Um, I'm going to read this section here. Welch had snapped up Employers Reinsurance Corporation, ERC, in 1984 for more than $1 billion. Other deals followed as GE dived into a niche that seemed like an easy profit center. Welch later reversed himself, admitting that GE had mismanaged a business it didn't know well enough. It was too aggressive and mispriced what it was selling. A potentially fatal move in the insurance industry. As a result, GE had to put up hundreds of millions in reserves in the late 1990s, but Welch had loved the business once declaring that GE's experience in insurance gave us the confidence we could do more. These GE acquisitions, he wrote, seemed like easy additions to a good thing. Instead, they exploded under ML who had to simultaneously shore up GE's insurance businesses and then exit the industry. Immelt ruefully joked that GE had no business in an industry that had until recently sold insurance for pets. The company spun off most of its insurance holdings into Genworth Financial in, in 2004 and sold much of the rest to the Swiss reinsurance company two years later. But there was some fine print in the deals. Genworth had a block of reinsurance that covered a variety of long-term care insurance policies, which cover expenses like nursing homes and assisted living. This coverage was gobbled up by customers, but it was priced all wrong and eventually wreaked havoc across the industry. When preparing for the Genworth spinoff, GE's bankers advised not making the long-term care business part of the offering. So, to make the deal more attractive, GE agreed to cover any losses from that group of policies. Around this same time, there's also talk about GE as a software and big data company. They have all these sensors on machines gathering info and they should be doing something with this, but they're not really in a position to move fast and break things when you're when you take big risks in aviation and healthcare people can die they're also not really in a position to make products on demand like Dell the power and utility machines can take months to manufacture and have to be planned far in advance nevertheless there's this sense that just embracing the language of innovation will put GE in the same category of an Apple or Google. And that's where there's this recurring theme of success theater. They start projects, but they don't really finish them. They mock up applications, but they don't ever get anything working. They make ads for things that don't really come to fruition. And it's a lot like you know, Instagram moms who take their kids to the park and they pose for these, for these pictures so they can put things online and then they don't actually play with their kids or let them have fun. But it's all just the, the image of the event. It's just fluff. It's all empty. And so there's more pressure on Imelt to reduce earnings from, from capital. And he starts talking about making a big acquisition. And there's a French competitor of GE called Alstom that's facing serious financial difficulties. And there's thought that buying Alstom and restructuring its operations and folding it into GE would make a lot of sense, but it has to be done at the right price. And this is where the comparison to Honeywell is so crucial. And to me, this is probably the most important aspect of the book. And this stuck out to me after reading it a few times. I feel like this is really where the difference between Welch and ML really, really sticks out. I would view the Austin deal like buying a cheap house that you're going to renovate and flip or something. And... You know, I don't I don't do this or anything, but I've watched my fair share of HGTV. And so, you know, you you have to buy it cheap enough that you can make a profit even if you hit some snags or you know, whatever. And instead, here you're overpaying. You end up letting the prior owners stay in the guest house. Oh, and there's like a bunch of asbestos in the house that you're gonna to have to deal with that sort of thing. And so to get into the actual, the actual deal, the the first complicating issue of this Alstom deal is that there's another publicly traded conglomerate in France that owns a large percentage of, of Alstom. This company Bouygues. It's spelled B O U Y G U E S. Anyways. So, because they own such a large stake in the company, they're going to have to be agreeable to the terms. And The deal is also going to have to be acceptable to the French government because Alstom has the same industrial importance to France that GE does to the United States. You have to stay focused on the fact that this is still, you know, this is still a house that's going to be flipped. And so GE has to take this sort of take it or leave it mentality. But instead, their first thought is that. They want to make sure that this conglomerate, Buig, I know I'm saying it wrong, sees a return on their investment so that they go along with the sale. But Alstom at this point is in absolute dire straits. They're either going bankrupt or the government is going to have to bail them out. But this other company that has a large stake in it should have absolutely no expectation of coming out ahead on their investment. They should hope to just not lose all of it. But once GE is valuing Alstom based on what it thinks some other investor should make rather than what GE needs to invest to make a profit, the value of the deal just falls apart on April twenty fourth, 2014, news breaks that GE is in talks to buy Alstom for $13 billion. At this point, Alstom's CEO hasn't even notified his board and the French government hasn't been notified. And so the French president is irritated and there's lower level ministers that are irritated They don't like the idea of an American company coming in and gutting one of their largest companies for the sake of synergies. And Siemens and Mitsubishi see what GE is trying to do in terms of cornering the the market in power generation. And so they come together to make their own bid where they're going to split the company. With this counterbid. The comparison to Welch is really stark, because when the Honeywell deal starts to go south, Welch just walks away. And even though it would have been a really nice feather in his cap to go out on top, it just doesn't make sense for Welch, as the EU is just demanding concession after concession. But in order to get the Austin deal done, Immelt proposes this series of joint ventures where different units of the company are going to be owned 50-50 by, by Alstom and GE, and the French government can even buy up to 20% in the new entity. And this, this deal structure that GE proposes is too good for Siemens to even make a counter-offer. But that's not the point. The point isn't to... Outbid Siemens. It's to come in, make a low ball bid, extract value from Alstom and integrate it into GE. If they keep raising their their bid, they're not going to be able to make any money. The French government is happy with the terms, but now they have to satisfy the european the European Union as well. The loss of Alstom in the power turbine business limits the shrinking universe of companies that sell and service these machines. Especially in Europe. The US Justice Department is also looking at Alstom, especially a subsidiary in Florida called Power Systems Manufacturing. PSM provides parts and services made by other manufacturers, including Siemens, and it's these long-term multi-million dollar service contracts where all the profits are really made. The Department of Justice is concerned that GE is going to develop a service monopoly if it acquires PSM. So GE agrees to divest from PSM, which it had expected would be this massive profit stream. The Department of Justice had also been investigating Alstom because while it was struggling, the company had turned to bribery in other countries in order to win power deals. Ultimately, in order to get the deal passed through the EU, MLT has to allow the Alstom turbine program to remain under European control. So they decide that the turbine unit is going to go to this small Italian company called Ansaldo which is by no means a rival to Siemens or Mitsubishi but this small Italian company is 40 percent owned by Shanghai Electric and this turbine program from Awesome is less advanced than GE, but it's more advanced than what China is currently manufacturing. But with a 40% ownership, ownership stake in Ansaldo, on it's only going to be a matter of time before Shanghai Electric is producing a cheaper alternative to compete against GE. At this point, people at GE are saying that the deal is way more trouble than it's worth there is little to no upside and they're looking for ways to get out of the deal through you know various clauses in the contract but they realize that Emma wants the deal done for his legacy and it's going to get done whether they torpedo their careers by raising objections at the end or not. And there's also a sense that GE is too big to be undone by a single bad deal. I'm struck by the Jim Collins description of level 5 leaders, especially in this sort of situation. And you know, he describes level 5 leaders as people that look at themselves when things go wrong instead of looking at others and external factors, or bad luck, whereas success is usually the result of good luck or the hard work of other people. And as criticism mounts over the Alstom deal, Imel complains that the timing of the deal is bad, and that if anybody had problems with the deal, that they certainly should have, like. That nobody spoke up, nobody said anything to him, and so you know, it's not his. It's not his fault. Before the deal can fully finalize, Alstom has to pay fines for bribery, and the Department of Justice is adamant that Alstom pay it, not GE. But GE ends up settling this request by making a price tweak labeled brand value adjustment and GE pays the pays the fine. As 2015 comes to an end, ML proclaims that GE is going to produce at least $2 profit per share by 2018. ML believes that the industrial segments are now positioned to grow enough that capital can be severed and cash from the sale of the financial services will be used for additional share buybacks. At the end of 2015, the stock crosses $30 for the first time in over seven years. To meet short-term sales goals, the power service offers upgrades to maintenance packages, extending their lifespan, but this this upgrade cycle is something that you can only do once you're stealing revenue from future quarters and bringing it forward by offering a package that would have come at some point in the future GE also assumed that with its software for data monitoring and um, instrument monitoring that still doesn't exist they would be able to reduce their cost of maintenance and they factor these projected savings into real world savings that they're going to increase earnings with in addition to these adjustments they begin selling their accounts receivables to generate more upfront cash. They refer to this as deferred monetization, but you know, it's like a payday loan. In May 2017, there's a big power and utilities conference and analysts ask him if he's still sticking with his $2 per share earnings guarantee for 2018 and he he waffles a bit and he says well you know it sort of depends on the on the macros and at this point immelt's just sort of lost everybody's confidence and the board has started this process of finding a successor a few years earlier and in the same sort of fashion as with immelt and welch there's multiple candidates and ultimately John Flannery is selected to succeed in And Flannery is described as this almost anti-Malt. He's a banker rather than a salesman. He's, he's got no swagger. Um, he, he's more business. There's very little about the actual downfall of ememo of like it's it's I don't know it's I, I, I feel like something's missing um, I would I would almost compare it to um, if you've seen no country for old men um, I don't you know spoiler alert but um, where like Llewellyn is just suddenly dead and you're like what happened? Um, Imoltz just suddenly out Um, anyways I just felt like there was more there in that story but yeah anyways so as Imoltz is leaving in 2017 the Wall Street Journal comes out with this story about how for years he's been traveling with two jets an empty jet would always follow in case he had any mechanical issues with his primary jet and this practice has been concealed from the board and Imel says he didn't know about it until 2014 and then the practice stopped but the flight records show that it didn't and he has been tailed by a second plane up until just a couple of months before he he leaves there's even debate over what he ate on the plane with reports of, you know, more modest chicken salad to the staff having to keep steak and lobster on hand so he can choose which one he wanted. And it's just, it's just an embarrassing story to come out right as Flannery is trying to get his arms around everything at GE, just highlighting the waste and corporate excess. And as Flannery is getting an overview of things at the power division. He sees that power has just plowed cash into inventory that they've let pile up and they expect that conditions in the energy market are going to turn around and they'll be in this great position to capitalize and sell all this, all this stuff. But the market's moving in the complete wrong direction and nobody wants anything. And you can't just put turbines in this sales section. It's not like DVDs. You can just, you know, mark down and put in a sales bin. Plus, after the Austin deal, they've made power their biggest division. And if it's not succeeding, the company's in serious trouble. Flannery starts these cost-cutting moves, including grounding jets and telling employees to fly commercial. He starts eliminating company cars. He cancels a corporate retreat in Boca Raton. I'll read this next section. Few had doubted the decision to jettison GE Capital, but the plan to replace its earnings had fallen flat. Industrial growth wasn't coming fast enough, and the company had blown billions on share repurchases that now seemed worthless. During Immelt's tenure, GE spent well over $100 billion buying up its own stock, much of it at a price far above where it traded now. Without adjusting its sacred and expensive dividend, the company had gutted its ability to generate cash. In the first six months of 2017, GE had hardly earned any of the $12 billion in cash it had previously said it would take in that year. It would need at least $8 billion just to cover the dividends it had promised stockholders before getting to the myriad other areas like research and development where regular infusions of capital were essential to its success. With the CEO role being a long-term position, Flannery felt it was his responsibility to put the company on the correct path forward. Flannery says that the dividend needs to be cut in half since this will save four billion dollars a year he says they've been paying a dividend in excess of their free cash flow for years and they've actually had to borrow money to pay for it i'm going to read this other section jeff immelt will not be remembered for wisely deciding how to spend ge's cash buybacks were a regular fixture under immelt who spent more than $108 billion on them after 2004, when the SEC required companies to disclose their practices. At the end of 2018, GE's entire market value was $67 billion. In Immelt's last 18 months as CEO, he spent almost $26 billion in cash on repurchases, even as the stock fought to stay near $30 during that, during that period. Just 15 months later, it had dropped below $10. When Immelt's retirement was announced in June 2017 and the repurchases stopped, it was as though someone had grabbed the assailant's hand. Around this time, GE's insurance obligations are coming due on these long-term care policies, they wrote, and just can't get off their books. They estimate they're going to be on the hook for 2 to billion, but in reality, it turns out being more like $15 billion, which they just don't have. GE gets a waiver to build, up the, to build up a reserve over the course of seven years and avoids a catastrophe. Flannery starts to remake the board in his image. One of the people he recruits is Larry Culp, the CEO of Danaher. An advisor warns Flannery that if things don't work, Culp will be the guy that replaces him. But Flannery says he doesn't care and just needs the best people there to help him. I'm going to read this next section. Culp grabbed the reins in the summer board meetings, drilling Flannery with questions about the power business and scolding the new CEO in front of the the directors for not knowing such nitty-gritty details as inventory levels. Given the sprawl of GE, few expected Flannery to have such details at the ready, but not Culp. He was a former CEO who, at a much smaller who at much smaller businesses or I'm sorry who at a much smaller business had been known for immersing himself deeply in its various companies rather than bringing Danaher executives to headquarters for reviews he would travel to their offices and walk the factory floors Flannery felt that he was bringing scrutiny to major issues that had been previously glossed over like how to best spend GE's money But for some on the board, Culp's dressing down revealed a bigger problem. Flannery lacked the experience to juggle the steady flow of crises while also running a company that he was still learning about. By this time, there was already a faction of the new GE board that wanted to consider a a change in CEO. After 16 years of ML, Flannery thought he had more time to turn things around, but he was fired after just 14 months. He was replaced by Larry Culp unlike Flannery, Culp at least knew what he was walking into now. He continued much of what Flannery started. He cut the dividend further, reducing it to just one cent. He agreed with the need to break up the company and sell off units. I'm going to read this next section as well. Under Culp, GE sold its transportation business, exited the oil and gas fiasco, and unloaded healthcare's biopharma operation for $21 billion. In a move, he says, will Help lighten GE's massive debt load. At this writing, the business most associated with GE's old avatar, Thomas Edison, the lighting division, is still for sale. It's actually sold now in 2020. Culp has pointed to the GE culture of Welch's days when operations were focused and lean, and lean manufacturing honed the company's efficiency. He is a student of the purest form of those processes, which came out of Toyota. The outsider CEO has tried to rally workers by declaring that he is one of them, but even the success of Culp's efforts would undermine a central tenet of GE's oldest and most precious belief, that it knew how to manage any business and could teach any of its own to do so. In the end, when General Electric most desperately needed a manager to save what was left of the company, It had to go looking somewhere else. I think this is just a fantastic book. There is so much that I couldn't even get in here. And I cannot recommend it enough. I totally understand why Charlie Munger recommends it so strongly. There is just so much good stuff in this book. I think I could read it again and do a totally different hour-long, two-hour-long podcast. It is such a tremendous book.